0: Oh, what a miserable span to be a Denver Bronco fan. (laughs) Remember the quarterback we had? Who made miracles? The weekly fad. And here we go, first snap of the overtime. The Broncos have been in three overtime games this year. They won them all. Got him. Got him at the 40. It's Thomas at the 50. Stiffer got him three to the 30. To the 20. Thomas to the 10. David's going on the new England. They win it on the first play of overtime. The new rules. Gotta score six on the first possession to close it out. They do it on the very first play. <laughs> Felt really good, didn't it? <laughs> that was 2012. The Broncos with an overtime victory over the favored Steelers. You know, sports writers after, after the game noticed a curiosity in Tim Tebow's statistics. They noticed he passed for 316 yards. And the average completion was 31.6 yards per pass. And the overnight television rating of the last 15 minutes, 31.6%. And then they flashed a picture of Tebow from 2009 when he won the national championship game. 316. And 90 million people Googled John 316. Now, you know, some of us who are maybe in the generation before Tebow, remember this guy? Remember this guy? Rainbow Afro dude? Behind every basket, uh, dugout, or goalpost, you'd hear, you'd see the John 3.16 shine shaking. in this guy. You should Google him. He has a ministry around the country for Jesus and joints. It's very interesting. So... Arguably, John 3.16 is the most well-known text of any other document. But do you know what it means? Do we understand what John 3.16 means? Today we'd like to talk about love from arguably the most famous verse about love in the Bible, John 3.16. We're going to talk about two truths about God which lead to one response. I thought it would be fitting for us, just so that we're all on the same page from the start, to read John 3.16 aloud. So would you join me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. First truth, John three sixteen tells us about God is this. God loves the world. Merry Christmas. Christmas has come around again, and every time Christmas comes around, it's an opportunity for us to, again, think through, what does Christmas mean? For many in our culture, Christmas is a nostalgic fable that's a great opportunity for families to get together and hope for a better world, to be the change we want to see. But is that all Christmas is? Everyone believes a story that gives meaning and definition to their life, and I'm asking you this Christmas, what's your story? What story do you believe you are a part of? What's going on here in this world? The Christmas story is this. God spoke everything into existence, galaxies, planets, stars, but the masterpiece of his creation was a man and a woman. And with Adam and Eve, because they were made in God's image, which made them the masterpiece, God was able to have intimacy in fellowship and conversation and they shared life together in the Garden of Eden. And it was what we could call a three-candle existence, peace, joy, and love. You didn't need hope because nothing was broken and nothing was missing. Then something tragic happened. Serpent, the evil one, came and began to plant some seeds and influence Adam and Eve. And he began to lead them with questions that they began to doubt the goodness of God. Or even more, that, to doubt that God was good enough for them. And so Adam and Eve began to question that. And in fact, turned their backs on God. And as soon as they turned their backs on God, everything fell. Like putting water into a gasoline engine. It broke down It stopped. It crashed. Sin, like a virus, began to be uh, passed through every human generation. Selfishness, suffering, sickness, all the things that make us, and we see it every day, know that there's something wrong with this world. Something is broken. But I think if we're honest, we also know that not only is the world broken, but even in us. Something is broken. As Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil is not a line that runs between countries. It's a line that runs down the middle of every human heart. I think if we're honest, well, we know the lies we tell. We know the thoughts that we have we would never say aloud. We know the secrets that we carry. Something is wrong in us. And in order for Adam and Eve and thus all of humanity not to remain in this broken condition, God escorted them out of the garden so that they could not eat from the tree of life and remain eternally in that broken posture. As he was escorting them out of the garden, God made a promise, and the world spins on the promises of God. He said, from the seed of the woman, she will bear a son, and that son would be the one who will crush the serpent, save the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Now, God loves the world. The world is a rather surprising word here. Let, let me talk about that for a moment. It's a favorite word of John. He uses it 74 times in the New Testament, the world He was having this verse, John 3.16, on the heels of a conversation he had with a religious studies professor named Nicodemus. And they'd been talking back and forth, Jesus and Nicodemus, about how a person comes to know God. And Jesus says twice, he says, you come to know God by being born again from above. It's a whole new life that God gives to you. You need to receive it. God gives you this life. But you see, where Nicodemus was, where Israel was at the time, here's what Nicodemus expected John 3.16 to say, for God so loved Israel that he gave his Messiah. You see, for Nicodemus and Israel, they were off mission And what they thought was that God indeed did love Israel, but that's where the love stopped. Keep all the foreigners out of our land, out of our lives. God loves Israel, period. So Nicodemus was surprised to hear Jesus say, God loves the world. I think we're sometimes surprised because of those other 72 Four references of uh, John using the world, sometimes John says this, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. And you see in that context, John is talking about parts of our culture that are fallen. And if we love those parts of our culture that are fallen, it can shipwreck our lives. For instance, John says, don't be led around this life with the envy of the eyes. Indeed, if you live a life of envy, wanting everything else that everyone else has, you're going to live a life of misery. He also says, don't love this part of our culture. Our culture runs on lust. He says, be wary, don't love our part of culture that says, you know, live in lust, the lust of the flesh. And then John says, don't live in this part of the culture which says love is about the pride of life, of having our ego constantly stroked and built up, of of gaining our identity from what people think of us. Don't love the world, those fallen parts of our culture that are about envy and lust and pride. So, if it's not that part of loving the world, what does Jesus mean when he says, God so loved the world? Well, the word world is the word cosmos. And he's talking in this context about the cosmos of humanity. Think about that. The cosmos of humanity. What Jesus is saying is that God loves every person, every kind of person, in every environment where they might dwell. He loves the cosmos of humanity. Now, so that we, like Israel, don't get off mission. I think we need to sit in that for a moment. You see, Israel got off mission when they forgot that God indeed loved Israel first so that Israel could love the world around them and be God's love and light and witness. But they lost that second part of it and only felt God loved Israel. Churches have that propensity too, to think that God loves us, period. And we get off mission when we leave the rest of the sentence off. He loves us to love the world. So, let's sit in that for just a moment. John 3.16 means God loves the poor, and he loves the rich. He loves men and women, girls and boys. He loves the transgendered. God loves the older person using a walker to shuffle down the hall and the newborn nestling in her mother's arms. He loves the strong and fit, and He loves the weak and sick. God loves the educated and the illiterate. He loves those from every people group, black, white, and brown. God loves the self-disciplined. He loves the addict. He loves the high and mighty, and He loves the low and oppressed. God loves liars, thieves, hustlers, men on the make, adulterers, pimps, prostitutes, whores, rapists, pedophiles. God loves the victims of sexual predators. God loves murderers, gangbangers, and those who abort babies. He loves the helpless victims. God loves transvestites and homosexuals and heterosexuals and all who worship sex as their Savior. God loves the greedy, the lazy, the good for nothing, the unemployed, the employed, the homeless. God loves deadbeat dads. He loves the divorced. He loves the happily married, the miserably married, the single, the widowed, God loves those who bow down to idols and those who bow down to sports teams. He loves those who are addicted to pornography. He loves atheists, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. He loves Mormons and Methodists and Manson followers. He loves those who use his name in vain. He loves his enemies. He loves those who hate him. He loves the gentle soul that cannot kill a fly. He loves the selfish, mean, proud, and vicious. He loves everyone. He wants their lives changed and bettered. And He loves you no matter what you've done. Amen. For God so loved the world. Now, you might say so that raises a question in your mind. Because you've read the Bible, and you know from like first page to last, there's this word that trickles in and out, wrath. Anger. It says that God is angry at sin, and he has wrath over Sinners. And even in John 3.16, you said, well, there's this word perishing in there. You mean to tell me if a person does not believe in God and Jesus, that they perish? And then you read these events in the Bible, like Noah's Ark, that talk about people who rebelled against God. God drowned them. So how can God love the world and be angry at sin? That is a great question. That's a really, really thoughtful question. Let me give you two brief answers that will hopefully at least spark some thinking and conversation. The first answer is a theological answer. The second answer is an experiential answer. How can God love the world and be angry at sin? First answer is I think What's happened sometimes in the way that we evangelicals, we've presented the gospel is a bit of a disfigurement of the Trinity. Let me unpack that for a moment. Remember that John 3.16 says, God loved the world. It doesn't say Jesus loved the world. I think sometimes the way we present the gospel is uh, good cop God, bad cop God. And we think Jesus is the good cop God. Who's always our ally and friend, and he's the one who goes and does everything on the cross and absorbs all the wrath, and he's always interceding for us because the Father is this perpetually seething, angry God who always is angry at us. And so Jesus is always interceding, good cop God, and the Father is always angry at us and sin and bad cop God. That is not it. That's not the gospel, it's not the Trinity. God so loved the world, which means that every person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit played a part in God entering the world, the Father giving His Son, the Spirit pointing to the Son everywhere, the, all three persons of the Trinity love the world and are involved in bringing salvation to us. 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Note that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So God loves the world. But you say, what about the anger, Larry? So here's the experiential part. I would submit to you, That anger and wrath are an important part of love. You know this. You ever been in love with a person? You know, they have your whole heart, but they go out and do something stupid that hurts you or hurts themselves. Can you not be angry and totally loving at that person at the same time? Of course you are. If you're not, there's something drastically wrong with the relationship. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is not anger. Do you know what the opposite of love is? Apathy. And any relationship, if it enters the apathy zone, it's in trouble when people don't care, when they're not angry. Do you know where you really live this out? Some of you are right there, right now, when you have kids. Woo! I think about the times in my life when I've been most angry It's had to do with my two precious ones named Ethan and Luke. When they would go out and do something stupid, not because they did it against me or to hurt me, but I knew that doing those kinds of things, they were hurting themselves. They were potentially scarring their life. And nothing, nothing made me more angry than the thought of something hurting my boys. I was totally in love with them, and would lay down my life, but I was seething for some of the choices they would make. That's a parent's love. Wrath is a part of love, and thank God that he cares. Well, how much does he care? God loves the world is the first truth, How much does he love? How deeply? That leads to the second truth, that he gave his one and only son. And that word gave, Jesus redefines love and defines it biblically, rightly for us. Because in our culture, I would argue that love is the sloppiest word in our language. We don't really know what love is. And if we listen to our culture tell us, it's this feelings about being in love. And you can be in love, and then you can be out of love and move on and out of the relationship. It's a whimsical thing. Jesus redefines love with the word gave. Loving is giving. Uh, I remember an old 70s song by some of you remember this guy, Don Francisco. He used to sing a song and he'd say, love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. God so loved that he gave. And notice, gave is in the past tense. God gave. It's not talking about a mood, it's not talking about an attitude, it's talking about a historical event And that event we call the career of Jesus Christ. He entered the world as one of us, lived the life we should have lived so that God could give us that perfect life. And when he sees us, he sees us as righteous because we have Jesus' righteousness clothing us. And we also have the weekend gift, the last days of his life, when he died on the cross in our place for our sins so that God could forgive us. The wrath of God absorbed And we can have relationship with God. God so loved that he gave. I want to say this again because it is essential. It's essential for your friendships, your marriages, your parenting. Love means sacrificing yourself for the betterment of the other despite the cost or their response. I want to say that again. It's really important. Love means sacrificing yourself for the betterment of the other in spite of the cost or their response. God so loved that he gave. Gave what? His one and only. The Greek literally means one of a kind. His one of a kind son. (laughs) Let this sink deep. God valued the well-being of the world. The cosmos of humanity valued that above his one-of-a-kind son, and gave his son to better the world. Now, again, I think this is the water we swim in, and we don't really always see the water we swim in. I think we need a little soaking in this. So I, I want us to do a thought experiment, okay? Stay with me on this. Thought experiment. First of all, I want you to picture someone you would call your one-of-a-kind love. Could be, you know, one of your kids, hopefully all of your kids. Uh, It could be your spouse. Maybe today's a good day. But what is uh, uh, your friend? Who is someone, uh, and seriously, who is someone you would lay down your life for? Or if they called you at three in the morning, no questions asked, you're there. Who is your one-of-a-kind Love. I want you to picture that person—a face, picture, picture, picture. Now, I also want you now to picture your worst of a kind person. This is a person you despise, you don't respect. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've disappointed you. Uh, Could be family members. Could be one of those days. I mean, I want you to picture the worst. Maybe it's someone you don't know. Maybe it's an arrogant actor or power-hungry politician. Now we're talking, right? Maybe, maybe this is someone for whom the thought of you sitting down to eat with them would be like you chewing a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, except in place of jelly, it's sand. Do you have that person? Who is that? So you have your one-of-a-kind, and you have your worst-of-a-kind. Got it? Now, you get news that your worst-of-a-kind is in the hospital. In fact, You actually hear that they have had kidney failure and their life is going to completely be torn apart and upside down if they don't get a kidney. Your worst of a kind, would you help pay for that surgery? Would you be willing to donate a kidney to your worst of a kind? Ah! It's deeper would you be willing to have your one of a kind donate a kidney to your worst of a kind knowing that it may hurt your one of a kind ah it's deeper what if you know that your worst of a kind if they die they will for the rest of their existence be separated from God. You need to do this. And you know that if you give your one of a kind for your worst of a kind, the one of a kind will be given into the hands of us, (laughs) sadistic soldiers who spit and beat and whip your one of a kind with Pieces of bone tied to leather straps across the back and the thighs and the chest and then nailed to a wooden cross through the hands and the feet and then left there to bleed out and asphyxiate. Would you do it? Romans 5, you see at just the right time, Merry Christmas. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some of you walked in, to the room this morning, and you are going through a valley. You are struggling. Some of you, even though you've many years out of the home, you continue to struggle because your parents have been a huge disappointment to you. They've abandoned you essentially, and you especially feel that this time of year. Some some of us are walking through where one of our spouses has rejected us and said, "I want out," and it's the worst rejection you've ever ever experienced. Some of us in this room have been from, it seems, the hand of God handed a disability or a disease that's going to take us down or hurt our lives. And you walk in this morning and you're wondering, God's love? Are you kidding me? Do not let those circumstances go unchecked. By the circumstances of John 3 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. There is no doubt that God loves you. The circumstances he created for his Son have come to bear on your circumstances, no matter how hard it is. Today, two truths about God God loves the world so much that He gave His one and only Son. So, how should we respond to that? That whoever believes in Him believes. That's an interesting word. We might expect it to say, well, whoever goes to church, whoever reads their Bible, whoever prays, whoever gives money to charity, no, no, those things come after. Those things come after the first word, believe. What does believe mean? It means to trust. It means to take God as the primary relationship of your life. It means to have Jesus be the one with whom your heart rests. It means to pledge allegiance to God as the most important relationship in your life. You know what it means? The Bible puts it in this metaphor a lot. It means, get this, that you are married to God. You have said, I do to Him. And you know how when you get married here on earth? Every other relationship in your life changes, and your relationship to every other part of the world changes. You have money differently. You do time differently. You do hobbies differently. You do work. Everything changes when you get married. And you are married to God. Whoever believes. The the Greek literally says, into him. It's a new realm. It's a new life. What does it look like? Well, uh, let me illustrate it with one of the oldest illustrations in church history. It's called the monkey jar. In the ancient world, they had this unique way of catching a monkey. They would get a clay pot with a narrow opening, and then they'd tie a rope to the pot, and then they'd put in that pot with their, you know, slim fingers, uh, like a banana or a small orange or uh, an iPhone. They'd put everything in there, and then when the monkey would reach in and grab it, Guess what? Because of the fist, he couldn't get it out. And then you just pull that monkey right over to you. Now it was surprising to me that someone wouldn't come up to that monkey and say, monkey, monkey, if you don't let go of whatever that is you want, you think you need, you can't live without, whatever's giving your heart rest, whatever you're clinging and clutching to in your heart, if you would just let go, just let go, you would find joy and freedom and all the other monkeys that you love. But apparently... No one has ever caught a monkey this way. It actually works better with a different kind of species. If you drive around five minutes from this church, you will see all kinds of monkey jars. (laughs) Tug, tug. There was a man who came up to Jesus. They called him the rich young ruler. He had everything. He had family, work, looks, job, everything that made life great. He had it, rich young ruler. And then he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus quoted him. The gospel's always been the same. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young ruler said, I've done that since I was eight years old. And uh, Jesus, who knows what every human heart clings to, really, on the inside, says, well, there's one thing you need to do. You need to start letting go of your money and giving it away to the poor and pull your hand out of the monkey jar and with that hand grab onto me. And he wouldn't do it. And he walked away sad. Tug, tug. Tug. There was another guy. He was a short guy in short guy's rule. His name was Zacchaeus. He climbed a tree. He heard Jesus was coming. He had that look Jesus did of John 3, 16 in his eyes. Jesus says, put burgers on the grill. I'm coming to your house. They have this conversation. Oh, yeah, by the way, Zacchaeus' hand was in the monkey jar. He was a tax collector. He was filthy rich and filthy because he stole most of the money. But he heard Jesus, and he heard John 3.16, and he heard love, and he experienced the loving presence of Jesus, and he let go. He began to let go. In fact, he tells Jesus, anyone from whom I'm stolen, I'm going to repay four times back, and I'm going to give half, not all, half of my possessions to the poor. And he pulls out his hand grabs onto Jesus. Now, I wonder at the end of their lives, which man do you think had the most regret about their encounter with Jesus? This is not hard, but yet it'll cost you everything you are. Following Jesus is like being married to God. And he comes to you now, every one of you. I believe God has orchestrated this group for this moment. Jesus comes to you, and this is the altar. And he says to you, will you honor and cherish me above all, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death brings us together. What do you say? Will you say, I do for the first time, or again, I do.